Well, the price of gold finally traded above 1800 for the first time since 2011. And in my last podcast, I mentioned that gold had kept knocking on that 1800 door. Well, it finally went through. In fact, I saw it trade as high as about 1818-ish or something like that. But we couldn't close the week above that 1800 handle. We ended up at 17 99-ish on the price of gold, but I wouldn't read anything bearish into the fact that gold could not hold 1800 on a weekly basis. There's really nothing that's technically significant about 1800. It's just a round number uh, that sounds good, and I think psychologically, having gone above it uh, may mean something, and there may have been some natural resistance just below that round number. But if you just look at the gold chart, it still looks fantastic. It continues to make new bull market highs. Again, we're not making new all-time record highs. We still need to get above 1900 to do that. But ever since the price of gold bottomed out in December of 2015, and now we resumed a bull market, the high that we just made this week is the highest price we've traded since making that low in December of 2015. And in fact, if you look at the price of gold in any other currency other than the U.S. dollar, gold is making all-time record highs. And so that's important when you consider that gold is global commodity, global money, that people in every country still compare the purchasing power of their individual currency to the price of gold. And so people all around the world are watching the price of gold steadily hit record highs measured in their own currency. Or a better way to look at it is they're seeing the purchasing power of their own currency hitting all-time record lows measured in the price of gold meaning you need more euros, uh, you need more Canadian dollars, right, or more Australian dollars uh, to buy an ounce of gold than you've ever needed in the past. And that means that the value of those currencies, the purchasing power is going down because you can buy less gold. Now, the same thing is happening to Americans. We're seeing our purchasing power decline. Americans can buy less gold with their dollars today than they could a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. Uh, It's just that it's not at an all-time record low yet. But that's coming. I mean, there's no way that the dollar is going to uh, be the only currency in the world that's not going to be hitting record lows uh, in terms of gold. In fact, I think ultimately we're going to start losing a lot more value uh, than a lot of these other currencies. And that's because of the amount of money that we are currently printing. Right? I mean, you can't create trillions and trillions of dollars out of thin air. And we're going to continue to do this until the bottom drops out. And then we'll probably keep doing it even beyond that. 
And in fact, even listening over the week, uh, listening to comments coming out of the White House, particularly Steven Mnuchin, about how uh, Trump supports more money uh, being directly uh, given to Americans. Again, where is all that money coming from that's going to be given to Americans? It's going to be printed. It's going to be conjured into existence out of thin air by the Federal Reserve. And you can't keep conjuring trillions of dollars out of thin air and, and, and handing them out without destroying the purchasing power of the dollars that already exist. And that also means that the new dollars will buy less than the old dollars bought before the new dollars were created. Now, the only thing really that is propping up the value of both the old and the new dollars is the dollar status as the reserve currency. But how long can we continue to enjoy that privilege if we are flooding the world with so many dollars? I don't think uh, it's that much longer. In fact, one of the uh, discussions that was in the news today has to do with the deteriorating uh, trade relationship between the U.S. and China. In fact, even now the Chinese are talking about a complete cessation of trade with the United States. And the United States seems to be okay with that. It seems like we are uh, wanting the same thing. Yes, we should cut off all trade relationships with China, right? They're bad guys. Uh, you know, they infected us with, uh, with the China flu. Uh, they're cheating. And so, yeah, we don't want to trade with China. And what so many Americans don't seem to understand is the true nature of the Sino-U.S. Uh, trade relationship. You know, it's not even a mutually beneficial relationship, which everybody seems to believe. It's more of a parasitic relationship where America is the parasite on China, where America is benefiting at China's expense. Yes, if you just look at it, China enjoys a trade surplus with the United States. So China has a profit, right? They are selling us more stuff than we are selling them, so they are earning a profit, right? They have a surplus. And on the surface, oh, they're winning, right? They're getting a surplus. But if you actually understand what they have a surplus of and then what they're doing with that surplus, it becomes clear which side is actually winning and which side is losing or which side is the patsy. I mean, I've talked about that on this podcast in the past, but it's as good a time as any to kind of bring it up again, especially since, you know, there are a lot of people who may not have been listening to uh, my talks uh, earlier on. You know, we get a lot of new uh, people uh, listening to the podcast all the time. And again, I would suggest some of the people who are just starting to listen to me uh, that they go back and that listen to some of the older podcasts because there's a lot of valuable information in those podcasts as well. But if you think about the, uh, the trading relationship, China manufactures all these products. And in order to manufacture these products, the Chinese have to divert uh, significant quantities of their own resources, whether it's land or labor or capital that are you know, going into the production of goods to export to the United States. Now, those are resources that could otherwise have been used to uh, satisfy the needs of their own people, right? They could have been used for domestic consumption rather than for export. Now, the main reason or the only reason that countries export 
is so they can pay for their imports. It's called comparative advantage and the gains from trade, right? If you have one group of people uh, that are uh, have a natural advantage or are more efficient in producing certain products, and then you have another group of people that have an advantage in different products, it makes sense for each group of people to produce what they produce most efficiently and then trade with each other their surpluses. That way, everybody has more, right? If you think about it in simple terms, let's say there's one farmer who has land that is great at growing apples, but not so good uh, at growing oranges. And then you have another farmer whose land is great for oranges, but not so good for apples. It makes sense for the one farmer to only grow apples, the other farmer to only grow oranges, and then they trade with each other. And as a result of that, each farmer has more apples and more oranges than if they both tried to, uh, you know, grow both fruits, uh, given the differences in, in, in their farms. Now, that's a simple analogy, but it still works. So to the extent that the Chinese are exporting, they should be importing goods that their own citizens can consume, except they're not. What are the Chinese getting in exchange for uh, their exports? They're getting dollar bills. And what resources do we have to set aside to create those dollar bills? None. We don't have to take any land, any labor, any capital and divert it away from anything. We just conjure up those dollar bills out of thin air and we just give them to the Chinese. So the Chinese get these little pieces of paper with numbers on them and pictures of dead presidents, right? And we get all sorts of consumer goods that make our lives better, right? So who's winning and who's losing? And then what do the Chinese do with those little pieces of paper? They loan them back to us. They buy treasuries, they buy mortgages, they buy corporate bonds, and they accept the rate of interest that's actually lower than the rate of inflation. So not only do they earn a bunch of paper that has no real value, but they turn around and give the paper back to us. And then we do it over and over again. I mean, if you think about it in terms of the, the two farmers, it's like you got one farmer that's growing uh, oranges and the other farmer that's growing apples. But when the apple farmer takes his surplus apples to the orange farmer, what if the orange farmer isn't farming? He decided to take a vacation. He didn't work. And so he just writes an IOU and he gives the apple farmer, you know, IOU oranges. And then the, you know, the, the, the apple farmer is willing to take these, uh, you know, these, the IOUs because he thinks, okay, maybe, you know, this farmer will work harder next year and, you know, I'll get some, some oranges for my apples. Uh, but he exchanges. And so the, the guy that has the, the orange farm, he still gets apples. So he gets to eat some apples, even though he didn't grow apples or oranges. And now the orange farmer, he has fewer apples, but he doesn't actually have any oranges at all. He has a piece of paper that's an IOU for an orange, but he can't eat that. He can't do anything with that. He can't make juice out of it. It's just a piece of paper. But he's hoping one day that he can actually exchange that piece of paper uh, with the orange farmer and get some oranges. Well, let's say, you know, time goes by and the orange farmer never grows any oranges, right? And the apple farmer just keeps exporting apples and, 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 and stockpiling these IOUs, right? The orange farmer is basically living for free. He's eating apples and he's not growing any oranges, right? And all the apple got, apple farmer's doing is getting fewer apples for himself. He's got no oranges and he's got a bunch of worthless IOUs. And the reason they're worthless is because while he wasn't paying attention, the orange farmer 
basically plowed over his uh, orchard and he turned it into a golf course. And he sits around all day and he plays golf eating uh, the other farmer's apples, right? And he's living for free. That's basically America, right? We're that orange farmer eating China's apples. And China is dumb enough to stockpile all these IOUs for oranges and they don't realize that we have no possibility of ever making any oranges, so they're never going to get anything to eat. Because what's really going on is the Chinese are sending us all this production in exchange for what really amounts to IOUs. That's what a U.S. dollar is. It's an IOU. It's a, you know, like wimpy, you know, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday uh, for a hamburger today, right? Well, we're telling the Chinese that we will gladly pay you real exports in the future if you give us or export to us the products that you're producing today. And the Chinese are, okay, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take that deal. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll take your IOUs. And the Chinese believe that one day in the future, they're going to be able to cash in all these dollars that they've been earning from years and years of trade surpluses. And they're going to be able to buy goods that are produced in America. You know, maybe when they retire, they all, you know, the Chinese want to stop working and they just want to live off the investments they've made and just start consuming all the stuff that American factories are producing. The problem is those factories are gone, right? Just like the, uh, the orange farmer who turned his orchard into a golf course, we turned all our factories into strip malls and shopping centers and uh, golf courses and apartment complex and whatever. We, the factories aren't there. We don't have the industrial capacity to make good these IOUs. And the Chinese just haven't figured this out yet. And they just are content to continue uh, to produce stuff and accept IOUs that are in effect worthless. It's like we're paying with a bum check. We're writing a check. And if they ever tried to cash it, the check would bounce. And here we are, you know, kind of saying, hey, we want to stop this, which is the worst thing in the short run that can happen to the U.S. But it's actually the best thing that can happen to the Chinese. I mean, the best thing we could do for China is to stop trading with them because then we're going to force them to do what they should have done a long time ago. But in a way, one of the reasons that the Chinese want to continue with this farce is because they don't want to write down the value of all the dollars that they've been holding on to. They, they're, so they're continuing to throw good money after bad uh, to, to maintain the charade that what's actually happening is trade. But it's not actual trade. The Chinese are giving us stuff, right? If we're not paying for it, then we're getting it for free. Paying for your, your imports is exports. Now, sure, the Chinese can use those pieces of paper to buy our real assets. They don't have to loan the money back to us by buying bonds. They could just start buying U.S. businesses. They can buy U.S. companies. They could buy U.S. real estate. So they can start buying real stuff. And ultimately, that is what they are going to do. That is what we are scaring them out of, because one of the reasons that the Chinese keep recirculating their trade surpluses into U.S. treasuries and U.S. mortgage-backed securities and corporate bonds is because they want to prop up the value of the dollar so they can continue with the charade, so they continue to sell us stuff and pretend that we can actually afford to buy it. But if we actually stop, if we take away the incentive for the Chinese to just prop up the value of the dollar so they can maintain this ridiculous status quo, then not only are Americans going to be deprived of all the goods that they now enjoy consuming that have been produced in China, but now the Chinese are going to spend 
all the dollars that they've been warehousing over the years or over the decades, and they're not going to spend it on consumer goods. They're going to spend it on real stuff. It's like they're going to repossess our farm. It would be like if the two farmers, you've got the uh, the apple farmer, year after year, he keeps collecting all these IOUs from the orange farmer, and the orange farmer doesn't have any oranges, so what does the apple farmer do? He ends up rep- you know, taking over uh, the, the guy, other guy's farm. He, ta- he repossesses his property. And that's really what's going to happen. The Chinese are going to start buying everything that's not nailed down, right? Because all that money is going to come flooding back in. But the biggest benefit for China, if it stops this you know, farce of trade with the United States, is that then the Chinese will be able to divert all of those resources that they were using to produce stuff for America and instead produce stuff for their own citizens. And now their own citizens will get to enjoy the fruits of their own labor. What's been happening is Americans have enjoyed the fruits of Chinese labor. That's great for Americans, but that's a raw deal for the Chinese. The Chinese will have a much higher living standard if they get to eat their own apples and their own oranges rather than allowing Americans to to feast on them. You know, an analogy that I made, even going back to my book, uh, Crash Proof, I I wrote about this in my book that came out in 2007. Uh, And an analogy I made uh, between what China is doing now and what America did during the 1940s, during World War II. During World War II, all of America's industrial might was concentrated on wartime production. We were making uh, tanks and weapons and planes and you know all sorts of products that were used in the war effort. And everything was about supplying the troops. So a lot of this productive capacity, of course, was converted from peacetime production to wartime production. You know, they they referred to it as the arsenal of democracy, right? But we had this powerful industrial base uh, that was able to ramp up uh, for wartime production. But then what happened is by 1945, you had a lot of economists who were looking at the U.S. economy and all this production going towards the war, and they were actually worried that this would be a disaster if uh, the war ended because then all these factories would no longer have anything to produce and all the workers would be unemployed because there'd be no more demand uh, for all these weapons. But of course, that was nonsense because then the factories would simply retool once again back to uh, peacetime production. And of course, during the war, uh, uh, consumer consumption collapsed. Uh, Things were being rationed. People weren't buying stuff because every, all the resources were going into war production. But we still had all the factories. We still had all the capacity. We still had the labor. In fact, a lot of the labor was at war. We had, what, 16 million men uh, fighting in, uh, in Germany and Japan. So those are a resource. Labor is a resource, and we were using that labor resource to fight a war. Well, once the war was over, well, those workers were freed up to do something productive, to help make consumer goods uh, for the American public rather than fighting a war uh, in in Europe or Japan. So instead of the economy collapsing, like a lot of these ridiculous Keynesian economists were worried about, the economy boomed after World War II ended 
because we no longer had to, uh, you know, divert all of our resources to fighting a war. Instead, we were able to use those resources to satisfy the needs of consumers rather than of a, of a big military. Well, that's the same thing that's going to happen in China. And you hear the same ridiculous arguments. Oh, if the Chinese stopped selling products to America, their economy would collapse. They're an export economy. They need the American market. If it wasn't for their exports to America, they'd have no jobs. I mean, this is a bunch of nonsense. It's the same nonsense uh, from World War II. If the Chinese stop producing stuff for us, they just start producing stuff for themselves. It's like when American factories stopped producing for the war, they started producing for domestic consumers. Well, the Chinese have been fighting a war all these years. They've been fighting a war to artificially enhance the standard of living of Americans. That's the war they've been fighting. Well, if they surrender that war and they give up, then instead of fighting to make American lives better, they'd, they'd free up the resources to make their own lives better. The key is not consumption, it's production. It's the people who produce that can consume. See, I hear this argument all the time, oh, the Chinese can't afford to buy this stuff. No, it's the Americans who can't afford to buy this stuff. It's the people who don't make it that can't buy it. The minute you produce it, you automatically can afford it, right? Because you're the ones that produced it, you have it, right? Now, if the reason that it looks like the Chinese can't afford it and the Americans can is because the incomes in China are much lower than the incomes in America. But that's all a function of the exchange rate. What would actually happen if the Chinese stopped propping up the dollar is the dollar would crash, the Chinese RMB would go up. And then all of a sudden, you would see that the Chinese can afford their products because now the products would be much cheaper for the Chinese buyers. And of course, they'd be far more expensive for the American buyers. The, 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 the nonsense theory that's out there is that the Chinese Yuan would collapse, but for this artificial uh, intervention by the Chinese government. It's actually the other way around. It's the US dollar that would collapse. The Chinese have been propping up the dollar uh, for decades. I mean, how do you think the Chinese have trillions and trillions of dollars in reserves? Why do they have all these reserves? They bought all these dollars to prevent the dollar from falling. If they didn't have all these reserves, the dollar would have crashed a long time ago. The fact that they were forced to buy all these dollars is all the proof you need that it's the dollar that's being artificially propped up, not the Chinese yuan. But you actually have Americans that are foolish enough to think that we'd be better off without the Chinese. I mean, think about all of the products right, that you're buying that are made in China. Where would we get these products if the Chinese weren't supplying them? I mean, we certainly can't make them ourselves. Now, you could say, well, we would just buy them from someplace else. Well, maybe, but obviously at a much higher price, because if another country was giving us a better deal than China, we'd already be buying from them. But they're not. But again, without the Chinese artificially propping up the dollar, we're not going to be able to afford to buy from anybody. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. But again, you know, if you haven't read my book, Crash Proof, my original book, or actually now you can get Crash Proof 2.0 in paperback. But I really get into this, uh, this whole concept in that book. And I've actually done some uh, YouTube talks, some of my earlier um, speeches, I really got into this topic. In fact, even in my, I think in my mortgage banker speech, I think I begin the speech by talking about this trading relationship with uh, with China. In fact, if you haven't seen my mortgage banker speech, you definitely should do that. It's it's up, up on my YouTube channel. Oh, by the way, too, on social media, I just went over yesterday a quarter of a million Twitter followers. I now have maybe almost 251,000 people following me on Twitter. I'm still not verified. I've been trying to get my account verified. They still haven't done that, but at least they haven't kicked me off the platform. You know, Stefan Molyneux, who was kicked off a YouTube I think two weeks ago, this week, uh, he got kicked off of Twitter. Uh, so at least I haven't been kicked off. So you can still follow me. By the way, uh, my wife has convinced me to start uh, using Instagram. So I haven't really started posting there yet, but I have an account, uh, Peter Schiff. I think I got, I looked, I got 40 followers. Uh, and only because I'm, I, this is the first time I'm actually mentioning anything about my Instagram account. Uh, so if you are on Instagram, go and follow me, uh, you know, Peter Schiff, and um, I'm going to start using it. I don't know. I, in fact, I think I might have already posted that that video up there. I forget the guy who made it, who who condensed my what it means to be an American and made that into a 15 minute video and put a lot of nice, uh, uh, you know, pictures there. You know, mine, I didn't have any of that. It was just me talking. So I think that might be posted and that might be it. But I'm going to try to figure out. Uh, how to use Instagram and start, uh, you know, putting some content on Instagram as well. So it's, you know, it's Peter Schiff. So you should be able to find it if you're if you're up on Instagram. But, you know, another thing that uh, Steven Mnuchin uh, talked about this week, you know, in addition to, you know, tough talk on China, but he actually did get called out for these PPP loans. And I talked about it on my last podcast. I was surprised that like 600 uh, asset management, private equity, hedge fund type companies, uh, you know, applied and got uh, these PPP loans. And of course, they're not really loans, they're grants. You get to keep the money because since none of these companies actually needed the money, then none of them are going to lay off any of their workers. And if you don't lay off your workers, you don't have to repay the loan. Although it's not automatic, you have to apply uh, for uh, the forgiveness. But if you meet the criteria, then I'm sure the loans will be forgiven. And so they're not loans if you don't have to pay them back. Just like, you know, when the Chinese are selling Americans products that we never pay for, it's not really a sale if you don't get paid. It's a gift. So the money that a lot of these uh, hedge funds and private equity companies got from the government, from the taxpayer, from the Fed, right, amounted to a gift. Now, Mnuchin uh, was being interviewed. And uh, I forget who interviewed him. I just remember watching it. But uh, she asked him, so, well, hey, you know, well, look at all these, these uh, you know, wealthy uh, hedge funds and asset management companies that got these loans. I mean, why, you know, why are you giving loans 
to these big businesses or these you know high income uh, people are getting all these loans. And Mnuchin's comment was, well, you know, they qualified, then they they are you know they're entitled to the loan. I mean, as long as you qualify, then you get the loan, right? And so he had no problem with wealthy uh, hedge funds or private equity companies or investment advisors getting all this money as long as they qualified. And he thinks they qualified, except they didn't qualify. I mean, in the way I look at it, if you have to lie to qualify, then you don't really qualify, right? Because lying should be a disqualification. Look, I'm going to read uh, right now from the Small Business Administration's website, from their Q&A about you know, who qualifies for these loans, right? So I'm going to read this. This is, right, quote, borrowers must certify in good faith that their PPP loan request is necessary. Specifically, before submitting a PPP application, all borrowers should review carefully the required certification. Quote, current economic uncertainty makes this loan request necessary to support the ongoing operations of the applicant. Borrowers must make this certification in good faith, taking into account their current business activity and their ability to access other sources of liquidity sufficient to support their ongoing operations in a manner that is not significantly detrimental to the business. Now, basically... What that says is that you need this money, and without this money, you're, you will be unable to support the operation of your business, and you have no other sources of capital to support the ongoing operations of your business. But these asset management companies, right, they didn't even need money, right? They didn't even need to tap into private uh, sources of credit to replace their lost income because they didn't lose any income. This is the ridiculous part. I talked about that in the last podcast. If you are an asset management company and you are charging fees, and that's what the hedge funds do, private equity, guys like me, I'm a registered investment advisor, I bill fees. None of the billing stopped, right? None of these firms stopped billing their clients because of COVID-19. And in fact, we all have the money. It's not like we have to wait for the client to send us the money, right? We don't send our customers a bill. We have our customers' money. We just take the money out of their accounts. So it's not like, oh, we have a bunch of unemployed customers and they couldn't afford to pay our fees. We already have the money. It's in the customer's account. We just take it out as, as the bills are due. So there was no disruption of cash flow. None of these companies saw a diminution in their revenue. Now, it is possible, yes, if you were managing money and the money that you managed, the, the market went down. And so because the market went down, your fees went down. But that's par for the course in asset management. Markets go up and down all the time. Fees go up and down all the time. That's normal business. There's nothing special about that. And in fact, if you look at how fast the market went up in 2019, even though we had a big drop in early 2020, the big drop just brought you back to where you were maybe in the third quarter of 2019. 
So, you know, if a business was able to operate in, in Q3 of 2019, then why shouldn't the same business be able to operate in Q2 of 2020? They're getting the same revenues. I mean, it is absolutely absurd uh, to believe that any of these companies actually needed the money when they didn't. You only need the money if your business was not operating, right? You ha- How are you going to pay your employees if you don't have any revenue? If you're a restaurant and you have to shut down, well, how do you pay your waiters and your busboys if you don't have any customers eating in your restaurant? Because the source of wages are the, the customers eating in your restaurant. But if you're an asset management company and your fees never stopped, well, you got plenty of money to pay your workers. You got all the money you had before. But now all these companies were able to get money from their customers and get money from the government. The money you get from the government is supposed to replace the money you're not getting from your customers. But even if you're not getting money from your customers, if you can borrow the money you need because you have a line of credit or you're a big company and you have access to markets and you have a private source of bridging the gap, then you're, you're not supposed to go to the government. It's only if you have no revenue coming from your customers and you have no ability to get a loan in the private sector, those were the people who were supposed to go to the government. <laughs> but of course, you know, that's not how it worked. But why doesn't Mnuchin just say, you know what, this is terrible. We, we're upset that a lot of people abuse the system and we want to go after people who lied on their applications. That would have been more honest if you would have answered by saying, you know what, we're going to go after those companies that certified falsely, that really took money that they didn't need. But no, he's defending every single one of these businesses that basically lied on their application in order to, to get free money from the government. Now, I don't think that's going to go over very well in the polls. I mean, just because, you know, the Democrats, they're guilty too. They, they wanted to ram this thing through Congress. But now you have the government defending Wall Street for taking taking this money. And now the Democrats at least will be able to, you know, point this out as just another way that uh, the rich and Wall Street is screwing us over. So that's just another election issue uh, that was handed over to the Democrats for, for no reason. And also, I'm going to get to this in a minute, but this is going to just increase the likelihood of substantial tax increases on the rich uh, in the Biden administration, because this is going to be yet another example of the rich getting bailed out. And now, hey, we bailed out all the rich people with the PPP loans. Uh, now it's time for them to, uh, to pay it back by paying their fair share by paying higher taxes. But one of the reasons that all these companies were able to lie and get away with qualifying for these loans that they shouldn't have qualified for is also, if you look at the Q&A for the Small Business Administration, Here's what it says. Any borrower, together with its affiliates, receives a PPP loan with an original principal amount of less than $2 million will be deemed to have made the required certification concerning the necessity of the loan in good faith. So in other words, the Small Business Administration said, if you claim that you need the money and the amount of money that you want is under $2 million, we will not make any effort whatsoever to try to determine whether your request is genuine. We're not going to look into whether or not you actually need the money as long as the amount of money you're asking for is under $2 million. So that was basically like a wink, wink. Hey, you know, 
As long as you don't ask for more than $2 million, you can get the money, no questions asked. And that's probably what emboldens so many people to ask for less than $2 million. So it's the government, they're basically telling you, hey, you're going to get it. We're not going to have any scrutiny. And of course, the reason was they didn't have any time. They were getting these loans out so quickly, they had no time to vet them. And remember, too, these loans are all non-recourse. Right? There's no personal guarantee. And this, again, had to do with companies that were going bankrupt that took the loans, knowing that they would never pay them back because they were going bankrupt. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about businesses like mine, asset management companies that saw no disruption whatsoever in their revenue. Right, And you know that was fortunate that we work on the phone. We talk to our customers on the phone. Our employees can work from home. And we simply bill people fees you know, no problem, right? Those are the companies I'm talking about, companies that use this as an opportunity to get a windfall at the the taxpayer's expense, right? Because Congress was dumb enough uh, to enact this law. But in theory, they can still go after people. And I think it would actually be smart politics if the uh, Trump administration actually came down on some of these firms that clearly took money that they didn't need. Now, what could probably right the wrong would be if some of these companies that saw no diminishment in their revenue, uh, and therefore these PPP loans, if they didn't repay them, would simply add to their profits. What they could do to kind of save face is actually pay back the money, right? Give back the money that they actually did not need. I mean, maybe some people could say, hey, there was a lot of uncertainty. I had no idea what was gonna happen, so I figured I'd take the money just in case. Well, now you know you didn't actually need it. So maybe the right thing to do would be pay it back. But I want to get to Joe Biden's speech that he gave yesterday. This is kind of the first speech he's given in a while. And this is where he is laying out his his economic plan. And of course, uh, Biden did use this speech as an opportunity to play to his base and try to hit all of the Democratic constituencies. Uh, you know, he's also trying to appeal to working people, to unions, right, and trying to take back uh, some of the blue collar votes that went Trump's way in 2016 by hitting on some of the same themes about manufacturing and about, you know, kind of America first. In fact, one of the things that Biden talked about was giving credit to workers and labor unions for building the American middle class claiming that the reason we have a middle class is because of labor unions and because of labor and because of workers, which you know shows a either just a basic uh, lack of understanding of capitalism or just you know outright ignoring it and just you know playing politics and it's probably more the latter. But clearly the reason that America had a middle class was not because of the workers themselves. The workers benefited from the middle class that capitalism, created. And even more specifically, it wasn't the workers, but the people who employed the workers that created the middle class. But the reason employers were able to uh, pay their workers uh, incomes high enough to enable the creation of the middle class was because of free market capitalism. Left to their own devices, workers aren't very productive, right? What makes workers productive is when they have capital to work with, when they have tools, when they have equipment. And where does that come from? Right? Where does capital come from? It doesn't exist in nature. 
capital has to be created and it comes from savings. It comes from investment and underconsumption. It's the entrepreneur that created the middle class by taking the risks and by creating capital, by enabling workers to be more productive, by supplying those workers with tools, with capital equipment that they did not have themselves. And it was the access to that capital that gave rise to increased productivity that made higher wages possible. And that's where the middle class came from. It was the efforts of the entrepreneur. It was their hard work. It was their self-sacrifice. The workers by themselves did nothing. All they did was accept a paycheck and they did what they were told. Right? The, the, it, it's their employer that gave them purpose, right? that gave them capital and direction and guidance and made a business and took a risk. I mean, Joe Biden has no conception of being an entrepreneur. He's been in government his entire life. What does he know about entrepreneurship and risk-taking, you know, and, and where economic growth actually comes from? He wants to just give all the credit to the workers. You know, <laughs> what, what could the workers do by themselves? They couldn't do anything. But again, that's where the votes are, right? Why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. Why do you kowtow to the workers? Because that's where the votes are. A lot more people cash paychecks than write paychecks. That is the problem. That's why democracy is so bad. You always make votes if you try to uh, win the votes of the workers. Who cares about the people who employ them, right? Because there's not as many of them. Voting is a numbers game, right? And so that's what Biden is appealing to. He's appealing to uh, the workers that outnumber uh, the employers. Another comment that he made too that I took exception to is he talked about how not only are people created equal with equal rights, you know, going back to the founding of the United States, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, he said, not only are we created equal, but we need to be treated equally. And what Biden was referring to equal treatment was not equal treatment under the law, which is what equal treatment is supposed to relate to, meaning that the law treats everybody equally. And I'm perfectly uh, okay with that. I like that. I like equal treatment under the law. Nobody is treated differently than anybody else, and nobody is above the law. But that's not what Biden was referring to when he referred to equal treatment. He was really referring to equal outcomes. He was talking about the fact that there's this big wealth gap, right, between uh, white Americans and black Americans, and he thinks, therefore, Black Americans are not being treated equally. And he also talked about, again, systemic racism uh, that needs to be stamped out. And one of the ways that we need to do this is attack this, uh, this wealth gap. Because obviously, if you're poorer, well, then you're not being treated equally. That has nothing to do uh, with equal treatment. Look, if you are going to tax Peter to pay Paul, because you don't think Paul is equal to Peter and you want to treat him equally by making uh, Paul richer and Peter poorer, that is an equal treatment. It's not equal treatment to Peter if you take his money and you give it to Paul. Paul is getting special treatment. He is on the receiving end of that transaction. You're stealing money from one citizen and giving it to the other. That is not treating all citizens equally. 
the person who is having his property stolen is not being treated equally to the person who is being gifted stolen goods. The way you treat people equally is you don't steal from anybody. That's what equal treatment is. It means everybody is the same under the law. Not some people are special, right? You know, and some people are not. Some people are, you know, have to pay the bills and other people just receive the money, right? That that's not being treated equally. But, you know, Biden doesn't understand the 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 terms there. But what I really want to get into is his new tax plan because that's basically what he laid out and you know he didn't get into all the aspects but they put out in writing his new tax plan which I'm going to go over now. So one thing he wants to do is eliminate the stepped up basis and what that relates to is that when somebody dies the basis of their assets whether it's real estate or stocks or businesses is stepped up to the value at the date of death. So let's say you have a basis in an asset of $10 million, and when you die, it's worth $100 million. There's $90 million of gains that haven't been taxed because the business hasn't been liquidated or the assets. What happens is when you die, all of a sudden, the basis now becomes the $100 million, which was the current market value. And what Biden doesn't like is that now these ta- these assets, there's no capital gains tax. The individual who owned the asset avoided the capital gains tax by dying. Ha ha, what a shrewd move, right? But he actually never realized the gain, right? He just left his assets to his heirs and, and never uh, sold the asset and, and spent the money himself. He, you know, allowed the assets, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to be passed on to another generation. But what Uh, Biden and the Democrats don't seem to get is there's still an estate tax, which is now 40%. So even though there is no capital gains tax, there is an estate tax, which is at a higher rate. The estate, the capital gains tax now is about 24%. The inheritance tax is 40%. That's a bigger number. But what they want to do is eliminate the stepped up basis so that if you inherit a hundred million dollar uh, asset that has a basis of 10 million, you owe capital gains on the 90 million. And then after you finish paying your capital gains on the 90 million, then you have to pay an inheritance tax on what you got left, which is a bigger problem because they want to raise the capital gains tax, which I will get to in a minute. But what this really amounts to by eliminating the stepped up basis, it, it really is a backdoor way of significantly increasing the estate tax, which should be abolished. The estate tax could probably be the single worst tax that we have because it barely raises any revenue, but it does tremendous economic damage. So it wouldn't cost the government much money if it got rid of the estate tax. And at that point, you know, if they want to eliminate the stepped up basis, okay, I can see that. I mean, I don't like the income tax at all, but if we're going to have it, you know, fine, get rid of the estate tax, and uh, but um, uh, eliminate the stepped-up basis. I think that'd be a better trade-off. But having both is an unmitigated disaster. I mean, first of all, you know, the estate tax, as I said, is a horrible tax. It shouldn't even exist. And in fact, it's unconstitutional, even though the courts have allowed it. It started in 1916, so we didn't have an estate tax, you know, from the beginning of the republic. We didn't have it until 1916, which was three years after we got the income tax. 
It is a direct tax, just like the income tax. They, they, the court struck down the income tax because it was a direct tax without apportionment uh, as required by the Constitution. So they amended the Constitution. 13th Amendment says that Congress can lay a collect taxes on income without regard to apportionment. It doesn't say they can do that with estates. The estate tax is still a direct tax because you're paying the money directly to the government. Well, what happened was the government got really sneaky and the courts allowed it. The government said, oh, the estate tax is not a direct tax on estates. We're not taxing the estate. We're taxing the privilege of leaving an estate to your heirs because the Supreme Court had ruled that an excise tax, in addition to being applied to a good, could also be applied to a privilege, you know, where the government grants a special privilege with a license or something that the government can have an excise tax on exercising a a privilege. So the government says that we're going to tax the privilege of giving your property to your kids, right? But that's not a privilege. That's a right. See, if you own your property, it's your property and you have the right to do with it what you want. If you don't have the right to do with it what you want, then you don't own it. And so if the government is claiming that they are allowing you by some kind of a privilege to give your property to your kids, then you never own the property in the first place. It was never really yours. It belonged to the government. And the government gave you a privilege of giving it away. But I talked about this on my earlier podcast. The government doesn't give us privileges. We gave the government privileges. The people surrendered power to the government. We own our property. Property is what the government was enacted to protect, private property. So they turned a right into a privilege, a phony privilege for the purpose of getting around the Constitution and levying a direct tax in violation of the Constitution without apportionment. That's really what the estate tax is. Same thing with the gift tax. The gift tax is levied not on the gift, but on the privilege of giving a gift. And they base the attacks on the value of the gift, but they're not taxing the gift. At least that's what the government claims. They're taxing the privilege of making a gift. That's not a privilege. It is a right to give away your property. It is a right to leave your property to whoever you want, right? So this is all, the whole thing was conceived in fraud. But the biggest problem with the inheritance tax is that it is bad for the economy, because you are destroying capital. You are destroying businesses. A lot of businesses, small businesses, need to be liquidated in order to pay the estate tax. So you're destroying businesses and you limit a lot of times the ability of a business owner to see beyond his lifetime and to plan and make investments that have 50 or 100 year time horizons when he knows that the business isn't gonna survive that long because it's not gonna survive his death because his kids are gonna have to pay the the estate tax. So you have a lot of businesses that end up getting liquidated either before death or immediately after death, and this is bad for the economy. Also, the estate tax uh, has launched a huge industry of estate planning uh, where a lot of people devote a lot of resources trying to figure out how to avoid the estate tax. You know, I would rather see those efforts uh, by our most entrepreneurial people be devoted to making their estate bigger, not trying to figure out how how to avoid the tax. And some people think, hey, you know, it's not fair, right? There's 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 a lot of um, envy, right, 
in, in the estate tax. Like, oh, it's not fair that some people get to inherit a lot of money. Yeah, okay, it's not fair. You know, there's a lot of things about life that aren't fair. But you know what? If somebody earned a lot of money, it's not fair to tell them what they can and cannot do with it. If you earn the money honestly, and by the way, people pay a lot of taxes uh, building up these large estates. I mean, why do they need it to be taxed again when they die? But destroying capital is bad for the economy. You know, leaving these businesses intact, allowing businesses to be passed on throughout the generations benefits the economy. It benefits everybody, not just the people who inherit the businesses, but the customers who continue to benefit from those businesses, the workers who continue to benefit from employment from those businesses, destroying those businesses just so we can dole out some money to voters doesn't benefit anybody. I mean, in the short run, sure, you can say, oh, you know, the taxpayers, we get a little bit of money we can spend. But look at the long-term consequences of reduced economic growth and lower living standards that is the trade-off for the estate tax. And what Biden wants to do by eliminating a stepped-up basis is effectively uh, make the estate tax much higher than it already is, which means it will do even more damage in the future than it's done in the past. Another thing Biden wants to do is he wants to return the top income tax rate to 39.6%, back up from 37. That's basically restoring it to where it was before Trump cut it. That's not that big a hike, but you know what? My gut is by the time the ink is dry on the hike, the top rate uh, might have a higher number on it. I think we'll probably have a four handle uh, on the top rate. I don't think it'll be 39.6. But the big increase is going to be for capital gains and dividends. He wants to treat capital gains and dividends for higher income people, right? Anybody who has income of over a million, although I have a feeling that by the time uh, they pass the bill, that threshold is going to come down quite a bit. But he wants to tax income from capital and dividends at the same rate as earned ordinary income, 39.6. Right now, uh, that income is taxed at 23.8. That is a significant percentage increase in the capital gains tax and the tax on dividends. In addition, he wants to increase the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%, right back where it was before Trump cut it. But, you know, it was a 25% cut to go from 28 to 21. It's a 33% increase, I think, to go from 21 to 28. So it's a bigger negative impact raising the tax back up than it was a positive impact to cut it. But again, we are destroying the value of corporations because we're not only raising the corporate tax from 21 to 28%, but we're raising the tax on dividends Right, which is the same income being taxed twice, we're raising the tax on dividends from 23.8% to 39.6%. So when you think about the combined rate, you look at a dollar of corporate income, right? And so right now a corporation earns a dollar and then it pays 21% tax. So it has you know the 79% left over to paying a dividend. And now the shareholder on that dividend pays 23.8% tax. So the effective corporate tax rate is about 40% because about 60 cents of the dollar that the corporation earned was left over for the shareholder. But now think about what Biden wants to do. He wants to take the initial rate on the first 
tax at the, on the corporate level. He wants to move that from 21% to 28%. So now you only have 72 cents to pay out. But now the shareholder is going to have to pay a 39.6% tax on that uh, 72 cents as opposed to 23.8%. So you're really taking the effective corporate tax rate up from about 40% to about 56% or 57, whatever the, the numbers work out. It's really better than a 40% increase, maybe 42% increase in the corporate tax rate. That is a significant increase because now corporations have a much lower value. If you're going to increase the, the effective corporate tax rate by 42%, that means that corporations are going to have significantly less after-tax income. And the value of a corporation is the present value of all of its future after-tax income. So this is extremely negative for the U.S. stock market. In fact, what would be smart is if Trump loses this election, which he probably will, anybody who owns appreciated assets should sell them before the end of the year. Because if you wait and you still own those assets January of 2021, you're going to be hit with a much higher capital gains tax. Because as always, when they get around the raising taxes later in the year, they will make it retroactive to January 1st. But this is a much more significant increase in the corporate tax rate. Because you have to remember that there's double taxation here. Right? There should be no corporate tax, right? All the taxes should be at the personal level. To the extent that we're going to have an income tax, which we should not, we should have zero corporate income taxes. Just tax the income when the shareholder gets it. That way, you know, because let's say there's a little old lady who is living off her AT&T dividends, right? Let's say she's earning such a small amount of income that she's not even subject to the income tax. Why are you taxing her? Because when you tax a corporation, you're not taxing the corporation. You're taxing the shareholders of the corporation. And some of those shareholders are little old ladies living off the dividends. Just tax the rich people who are getting dividends when they get them. So tax the, the corporate income when the shareholder gets the check. Don't tax it at the corporate level because that's just a pass-through entity, right? Wait till it gets passed through and then see who gets it and then levy the tax. I, I think it's completely inefficient. We should have a zero corporate tax rate. Of course, we should have a zero personal tax rate. But to the extent we're going to have the taxes, let's levy it to the final recipient. Let's not destroy uh, it, you know, the value of corporate uh, retained earnings or their ability to reinvest income and grow the businesses. Let's just wait till the shareholders get paid and then, and then levy the tax at that rate. And I've got no problem with taxing capital gains at the same rate as ordinary income. Just take the, the corporate tax to zero and then treat capital gains the same as any other income. But that's not what's going to happen here. But one of the big uh, losers, of course, when they do that are going to be the hedge funds because that's going to eliminate the carried interest, right? All these hedge funds, uh, they're able to get their performance fees. You know, they charge 2% to manage money and then they take 20% of the profits. They pay ordinary income taxes on the 2% but they pay capital gains taxes on the 20% of the profits. So if this bill passes in this form, then that carried interest is going to go away, which means there's probably going to be a lot of big money uh, that may now be backing Biden uh, that will be uh, in staunch opposition. But maybe now, finally, 
uh, the lobby will not be able to uh, hold back this tide, you know, especially since, as I said, so many hedge funds and asset management companies uh, and private equity companies got bailed out with PPP money. That's another reason why they should no longer avoid this subsidy. Hey, you know, we bailed you guys out when you were in trouble. The least you can do is pay the same tax rate as your secretaries, right? That's what's going to happen. So, you know, this is going to come back to bite the industry based on the fact that they took advantage of, uh, of, of that, uh, you know, government program. But again, this is a significant increase in capital gains tax and basically in corporate taxes, not just the, the official corporate rate, but the increase in dividends. And of course, to the extent that companies don't pay dividends, they just buy back stock and they reward their shareholders with capital gains, the, the, the effect is the same when you raise the capital gains rate. Also, they want to raise the income tax. They want to have further limits on itemized deductions. That's coming. They want to impose a minimum corporate tax. Uh, they want to have a 15% tax on what they are calling book income, which basically means they want to tax corporations that don't really have any income. Because if you look at the corporate income tax, they're not really taxing income. They're taxing profits. It's actually a profit tax, right? You only pay a tax if you have a profit. doesn't matter if you have income. If the income doesn't result in a profit, you don't pay the tax. Well, what they want to do now is they want to, they want to tax companies that don't even have any profits. They want to tax income. But again, constitutionally, they can't even do that. See, the reason the corporate income tax is supposed to be uh, 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 allowed is because it's an excise tax on corporate profits. <laughs> you know, it's supposed to be on profits, not on income, uh, which would be a direct tax on income. It's supposed to be an excise tax on their profits. Uh, but again, no one cares about that anymore. There is no reason to make the distinction because no one cares about the Constitution. The government does whatever it wants right now. Uh, you know, it had to amend the Constitution to allow for the income tax, because at that time, the Constitution actually meant something. And so you needed to amend it. You know, by the way, when I, I, I you know, I talked in, uh, in my uh, What It Means to Be America video about the fact that, look, the Constitution is not a, a living, breathing document. It doesn't just evolve with the times. And one of the reasons you know that is because they, the founding fathers left the process to amend the Constitution. Well, if the Constitution, you know, uh, you know, was a living, breathing document that meant whatever you wanted to mean, and the government had unlimited powers, then why would you need to ever amend it? I mean, just, you know, just it means whatever it wants. The fact that there is a process for changing it meant that it, it, it actually meant something, that there were things in the Constitution that the government couldn't do. And if it wanted to do them, well, it would need to change the Constitution. Well, now the government doesn't have to change the Constitution because the Constitution doesn't mean anything. Government does whatever it wants. So it'll probably have no no problem with basically changing the nature of the corporate income tax, which according to the Supreme Court is a profits tax, and they're going to start taxing companies even that don't have a profit. They want to raise the tax on uh, offshore profits, the guilty tax. Uh, they want to jack that rate up as well. But here is a big one in here. I'm reading through this. They want to eliminate the um, 1031 exchange, which is going to be a real killer for the real estate industry. We'll see if they actually can get this done because the 1031 exchange has been in there for a long time and it has a lot of lobbying support, but maybe this is specifically a way at getting back at Trump uh, or anybody that's involved in real estate. But if you don't know what the 1031 exchange is, right, that is when you sell a piece of property, you can take the money that you get 
And if you do it the right way, right, you have to set up, you know, you have a certain amount of time or you can do a delayed exchange, but there are certain accounting rules in order to make this work, right? You have to go up in value, up in basis. It has to be like property. And so I don't want to get into all the technicalities, but it's not that hard. And a lot of people in the real estate industry do this and you sell one piece of property. And let's say you bought a piece of property for a million dollars and you sell it for $2 million, right? You made a million dollars, right? You have a million dollar capital gain. But if you take that $2 million and just buy a $3 million property with the money, you pay no taxes. And now the basis of your original property just gets pushed forward into that new property, right? And then you can sell that property for $5 million and buy an $8 million property and shove the basis forward. And you can keep doing this and pay no taxes along the way. And you can build up this huge you know, real estate empire having never paid a dime in capital gains tax, right? You can't do that with the stock market, right? If you sell your IBM to buy General Motors, you got to pay a tax on IBM. And then you buy your General Motors with your after-tax proceeds. But in real estate, you got to use the full proceeds. The government never, you know, cut the cut the deck, right? You never had to diminish your pool of capital. So this is a huge advantage to the real estate industry where they're able to utilize 100% of the sales proceeds to make their next acquisition and delay pretty much indefinitely. Because again, if you die, then your basis gets stepped up to the day of death. And there's no capital gains tax that's ever paid on all these properties uh, because the basis from the very first one, right, which was the beginning of this whole string of transactions, now all of a sudden uh, the, the, the basis is adjusted to the market value on death and now there's no capital gains. But again, of course, the people who inherit that property now have to pay an estate tax, which is even larger than what the capital gains tax was. But this has been a big benefit. And now they want to take this away, right? So that's in uh, Biden's bill to get rid of the ability to do that. So anytime you sell a piece of property, you're going to have to uh, pay taxes. And then you're only going to be able to buy a new piece of property with the after-tax proceeds. But again, the those tax rates are going up. The capital gains tax rates are going to go up. So this is a double whammy because not only are you not going to be able to defer your capital gains with a 1031 exchange, but the rate that you're going to have to pay is going to be much higher. And here's a kicker. And this is something that really wasn't in the official release. Nobody's really talking about this, uh, but I am because I know that separately, this is another policy that Biden has endorsed. And that has to do with social security taxes. What Biden is in favor of doing is not only eliminating the cap where every single dollar you earn will be um, subject to unemployment taxes, but he wants to subject capital gains and dividends to Social Security taxes. I mean, right now, capital gains are subject to the Medicare tax. That's the Obamacare tax. That's why the capital gains tax is uh, 23.8%. It's really 20%, but the other 3.8% came on under Obama, right? And that's really the Medicare portion of both the employer and the employee put on there. And that was to help pay for Obamacare. That's why it's 23.8. Well, what Biden wants to do is take the rest of Social Security. Because when you, you know, when you get Social Security taken out of your paycheck, the payroll tax, it's partly for Medicare, 
but the lion's share goes to Social Security. But when you add the two together, I think it's 15.3 is the combination of the uh, Medicare tax and the Social Security. Well, what Biden really wants to do is he wants to apply the entire uh, payroll tax to uh, capital gains and dividend income and eliminate the caps. So if that happens, the real capital gains tax rate and the tax rate on dividends is going to go from 23.8% to 54.9%. And of course, that means the corporate tax rate, because now you're applying the Social Security tax to the corporate tax, will actually rise to just over 60%. So that means when a corporation earns a dollar, by the time the shareholder pays the corporate tax indirectly and his personal tax and Social Security tax, he'll be left with 39 cents. That's, and that's before the state imposes a tax. You know, you live in a high tax state. California has a 13% uh, income tax, marginal tax bracket. So that means if you live in California, you're only going to get about 32 cents on the dollar. You're talking about about a 68% tax on uh, corporate income by the time the shareholder gets it. So this is a huge tax increase. In fact, if you think about a percentage, the percent increase from 23.8% to 54.9%, that is a 130% increase in the tax on capital gains and, and, and dividends. So these are horrific tax increases that Biden is talking about. And you know what? They're not even nearly as bad as the ones that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders we're talking about. So a lot of people may think, oh, okay, we dodged a bullet. That's not that bad. Until you really dig down like I'm doing and you appreciate the significance of these tax hikes. And in fact, it's probably going to actually be worse. By the time they sit down and run the numbers, my guess is the rates will actually be higher and they will end up applying them to an even lower uh, income category. So this is huge tax hikes that are coming in 2021. But again, the biggest tax hikes is going to be the inflation tax. That's what's going to kill everybody because the government is still going to be raising the majority of its revenue through inflation rather than through legitimate uh, taxation. And again, when I say legitimate, it's not really legitimate if it's unconstitutional, but at least it's out in the open, right? When the government takes your money by through taxation, at least you know they took it, right? When they take it through inflation, you have no idea why you're poorer, you just end up poorer.